He is risen. Happy Resurrection Day. I am so delighted to be with you in worship of our King. And uh, we're going to be in a text in a moment in Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn that way, I want to uh, echo what Vincent said. You guys do look really good. Loved uh, on the way in just seeing all the little gals, all the little girls wearing their, their Easter dresses. Uh, made me really want one of those. But the Lord knows what he's doing. I uh, just hope my boys wear shoes, you know, hope they have shoes on. Listen, uh, this, is, uh, this is so fun to gather. We've had a uh, sunrise service this morning uh, in, uh, out at uh, one of our members' homes. Uh, they have some land, and it was incredible. It was supposed to rain. The last time I had looked at the weather was yesterday morning on my phone, and it said, it's going to rain from 5 to 8. And I was like, shoot, you know, that's, that's the sunrise service. And, uh, and, we, and I told um, my, uh, my oldest son that. He had said he wanted to go, and so I woke him up this morning, and we were on the way there, and I said, Caleb, this is incredible. I, I can't believe it's not raining. He said, why can't you believe it? I said, well, it's just my phone said it was going to rain and exactly now, and I mean, it was just this perfect morning. He goes, Dad, don't you think if God raised his son from the dead, he could hold the reins off for the service? I said, I think you're right. I should have known. <laughs> and he did. And, man, it was a, uh, just a beautiful time there, and, and glad we could continue worshiping our king. Uh, he is alive. Well, if you would stand with me one more time, I'm going to read our text together from Acts chapter 2. We're going to be uh, verse 22 to 32 this morning. We've got it on the screens. If you don't have your Bible with you or you can follow along uh, in your Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 32. This is the very words of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. It's the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for the very words of God that you have breathed these words. Even as Peter stood up amidst the uh, celebration and confusion and all that was happening at this first ever church service and gave what was the first ever sermon that it was your word that went forth, that your Holy Spirit carried along and inspired the word he gave, a word that centered around the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so I pray that today as um, this word goes forth, it would again be your word centered around the resurrection of your son Jesus. And I pray that as I speak, Jesus would increase. He must increase and I must decrease. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was probably um, a month, maybe two ago, 
when um, we came home, I think we had been at a series of basketball games. It was a little bit later. We got home from the last game. We kind of ate a later dinner, and um, we were gathered around the table. Uh, our tradition is the boys and I clean up the kitchen, and so we were just kind of finishing cleaning up, and I was sending them up to the showers, which comes immediately before bed. And Caleb sat down, and I said, buddy, what are you doing? He said, Dad, I, I, there's something I want to talk to you about. And um, I can pretty readily recognize this as a stall tactic. It happens from time to time. And I said, hey, buddy, um, you know, wh- what do you got? You know, it, we, it's, it's bedtime, but, but what's going on? And I kind of noticed his, his, uh, his, uh, his face contorted a little bit. He looked like something was really troubling him. He said, Dad, um, just been thinking, and I'm, I'm having a hard time. I said, what's going on, man? And he said, you know, we were uh, just doing our family devotional a few moments ago. We read the Bible a lot as a family, and um, I've gotten to where, Dad, I, I, I think I understand many of the stories in the Bible. I certainly understand the story of the Bible. I, I see what's going on, and Dad, I just have been thinking a lot about Jesus and the gospel, and Dad, I just want to know how how do we know it's all true? How do we know it's all true? At that point, I pulled up a chair, and uh, for the next 90 minutes, we had a great talk. And where I started with Caleb was this. I said, Caleb, that's an incredible question. Uh, That's the most important question you could ever ask me. If God gives me a hundred years on this earth, you'll never ask me a more important question than that one. It's probably some of your question this morning. How do we know it's all true? And I said, Caleb, I want you to understand this. While your faith is going to have to be your faith, it's not going to be mine, it's going to have to be yours. You're going to have to come to a, a belief where you put your trust in Jesus on your own. I do want you to understand this about the Christian faith. I want you to understand that our faith is a reasonable faith, and it's an experiential faith. And I took him right to the resurrection. Right to the resurrection. The resurrection is the absolute epicenter of the reasonability of our faith and the experience of our faith. And the truth of Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected on the third day, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the entire Christian faith and message, the truth of our faith hinges on the integrity of the resurrection of Christ. And in this first ever sermon given in the church on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and as he is preaching, and by the way, it seems pretty impromptu. There's the the tongues of fire uh, uh, resting over the heads of those who are preaching the gospel in their own tongue to those Jews who have come from all over the earth. And a lot of people don't understand what's going on. Obviously, the, the scene is wild. And Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd. And he addresses them with such a boldness and a tenacity. He's saying, brothers, this Jesus Or men of Israel, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's some bold language. He said, God has raised him from the dead. Now, he ends this little part of the sermon that we're looking at saying, we know it to be true because we are all witnesses. Peter says, I'm a witness. I've seen it with my own eyes that God raised this Jesus whom you crucified from the dead. The very fact that that Peter is preaching this message is an incredible testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think with me for a moment about it. Peter, just 50 days earlier, just 50 days earlier, if you remember the night where Jesus 
was betrayed. He was arrested from the Garden of Gethsemane. They uh, took him and escorted him to the high priest's uh, house. And as he was um, uh, in the high priest's house for his trial, Peter was hanging out in the courtyard just outside, gathered around a charcoal fire. And he was kind of, he, he must have been kind of ducked in, kind of trying to hide, not really be known, but keep an eye on what was going to happen to Jesus. And a servant girl saw him, just a young servant girl saw him and said, hey, uh, I've seen him with Jesus. And if you remember Peter's reaction around that charcoal fire, Peter said, not me. No, no, no. I don't know the man. He's so afraid to even be associated with Jesus on that night. Just one day later when Jesus was crucified on the cross, from that point all the way till Resurrection Sunday, all the way till the Sabbath, that entire Friday evening till Sunday, Peter was huddled up in a room with the other 11 disciples for fear of the Jews. In other words, he thought, gosh, if they've done that to him, if they know I'm with him, they may do the same thing to me. He denies even knowing the man. He won't associate him. He won't even go outside because he's afraid he'll be recognized. Now something happens, and seven weeks later, he'll stand before the throngs. He'll stand before thousands of Jews, many of whom were the same ones that yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And he will say, this Jesus whom you crucified by the hands of lawless men, God raised him from the dead, and I'm a witness. Now, if he actually did see the resurrected Christ, if he actually saw him, then that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But if he didn't, how do you explain it? If he did not see the resurrected Christ, how do you explain the transformation from Peter fearing for his life, won't he be associated with Jesus to Peter boldly proclaiming the gospel? How do you explain the change? You may say, well, I, I think Peter was crazy. I think he just made it up. I think he hallucinated. He thought he saw Jesus, but who knows what he saw? What about Paul? What about the apostle Paul who relished the persecution of those who were followers of the way. That's what they called Christians in that day. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Those that were, uh, th this growing sect of uh, people that were claiming to have seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. Because you know, Paul writes that he appeared to over 500 at one time. Many are saying, I've seen him, I've seen him. And Paul is relishing that he can go arrest them, torture them, and even kill them. He oversaw the stoning of Stephen. Paul was a blue blood of Jewish spirituality. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And uh, Paul, on one occasion, had went to the high priest and said, hey, I would like to have papers that make legitimate, that legalize my desire to go to Damascus, round up all the followers of the way there so that I can torment them, persecute them, and kill them. And the high priest gives him his papers. And Paul, who at the time is Saul of Tarsus, Saul is on his way to Damascus when a, uh, a bright light shone from the heavens that knocks him down and he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, I'm sure you would, he did what you and I would have done if it had been us. He, he said, uh, who are you, Lord? Like he knew this is the Lord, but he said, who are you? And the voice came back and said, it is I, Jesus. Now from that moment on, Saul became Paul. From that moment on, the one who was the fiercest persecutor of Christians became the most ferocious proclaimer of the gospel. And yet again, if he had this experience which he claims to have, that makes perfect sense. Without it, how do you explain it? So you may say, well, I think he was crazy too. 
Peter, Paul, crazy. What about the 11? What about the 11 huddled up in the room for fear of their lives, shrunk back in fear? Um, famous historian, philosopher, and, uh, and renowned expert on the resurrection, Gary Habermas, said uh, he did a study. And he did a study on um, uh, the 1,400 uh, scholarly works written on the resurrection between 1975 and, and 2003, 28 years. He took the 1,400 most scholarly works written. By the way, from the ultra-liberal scholar to the uber-conservative scholar, he took all of these works on the resurrection, and he did a study. He investigated, and he wanted to produce the greatest investigation of the resurrection ever known to man. And he discovered that there are 12 things that every single scholar, whether they believe in the resurrection or not, every scholar agrees on 12 things. Numbers 4, 5, and 6 were these. Number 4, that the tomb was empty. Every scholarly work on the resurrection agrees the tomb was empty. Secondly, they agree that every one of the disciples legitimately believes that they saw the risen Christ. Whether they did or not, they each actually believe they did. And number six is the proof of that, that every one of those men is so transformed by whatever they believe to be seeing the resurrected Christ that they would be willing to die for their claim of eyewitnessing the resurrected Christ. Every scholar agrees on this. Can I tell you this? Those 11 that claim to see Christ after they were shrunk back in fear, those 11 will literally take the gospel to the corners of Asia Minor and beyond to the ends of the earth. They will, and by the way, they will be split up. They will be off alone in different areas of the world and every single one of them separated and isolated, persecuted, tormented, and martyred. Everyone except for John who was boiled alive and in exile, so he didn't have it easy. Every single one to the point of death, isolated and alone, not one of them would say, wait, wait, we made it up. Not a one. Every single one of them to the death. Now this makes sense if their motive had been somehow like, uh, man, if you'll hold to this story, it'll, it'll bring you great fame or fortune or uh, power, prestige, something, but if holding to this story gains you nothing and costs you everything, it makes no sense. Unless it happened. Unless it was true. Unless Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead and we are all witnesses. I saw Caleb's eyes begin to twinkle. I saw a little smile begin to form around his lips as the assurance of a faith that is reasonable, washed over his mind and his heart. I had a, I had a mentor this week uh, shoot me an email uh, with a very interesting thought. He said, um, you know, uh, there are about two billion Christians today, uh, professing Christians, about two billion. So there's about 200,000 that are full-time missionaries. 200,000 out of two billion. So if you do the math, that's .001. Christians are missionaries, and, and, and I would argue that it's much easier to be a missionary today, not easy, easier than it was in the first century, where it most likely cost you your life amidst other persecutions and great suffering, .001, and yet Jesus' inner circle of the 11, 100% of them were missionaries in a day that was incredibly tough to be a witness for Christ. You know why I think that's the case? 
those 11 heard the great commission from a risen Christ. Amen? Ours is a reasonable faith. Peter said, we are all witnesses. And those who claim to be witnesses, their lives bore out the truth. I said, Caleb, ours is a reasonable faith, but it's not only reasonable. We're not merely believing in in what happened to the historical Jesus. We're believing in what we're experiencing with Jesus every day, even to this very hour. Even as he leads and stirs in this very conversation, Caleb, there's an experience of Christ because he's alive that testifies to the truth of our faith. Look at what he says here in the text. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Uh, That phrase tripped me out a little bit this week, loosing the pangs of death. I had to look up a lot of this. Pangs is the idea of emotional anguish. And what this is talking about is the idea that um, the fall in the state of man under God is that of we will all die. Every single one of us. The wages of sin is death. We have all sinned. We'll all pay the wage. The last I checked, the, the current going death rate presently today is, is hovering right around 100%. We're all going to die. Happy Easter, being cursed. Listen, if you want to make, if you, if you want to, I'm going to cheat death. I'm going to be death. I'm going to escape death. Any attempt you make will be futile in the end. Like we are all going to experience physical death unless Christ comes again and interrupts our life with His glory and raises us to be with Him. Unless He comes while we're alive, we will die. And so here's the deal. You can ignore that reality. You can just try to go about. You, you can try to ignore the reality of death and, and try to just live your life uh, and enjoy your life as much as possible. But with, without a doubt, every one of us will bear the weight of death. It's coming. It's impending. It's unavoidable. We feel the pangs of that which is coming in death. And the text said God loosened the pangs. Now, he didn't remove the pangs. There's still before us this foreboding reality of a physical death that is coming. He didn't remove that, but he loosened it. In other words, it doesn't cause us anguish the way it otherwise would had Christ not been raised. It says the, re- the, the way he loosened it was because Christ couldn't be held down by it. Let me, let me put the piece of the puzzle together. The wages of sin is death. It, it's like sin puts these handles on you that death can grab hold of. Death grabs hold of the handles of sin, and you're in my life, and it drags us to itself. It holds us near by our sin. Well, Jesus Christ gave himself over to death willingly, and yet he had no sin. There were no handles. So it's, it's, it's Velcro trying to stick to a cue ball. There was, there was nothing to grab, and so death couldn't handle Christ. The grave couldn't hold him. He emerges victoriously from the grave. And you say, well, that's fantastic for Jesus, but what does that have to do with me? Well, nothing, nothing if you've not put your faith and trust for salvation in him. Does nothing for you. If you haven't trusted Christ for your salvation, then here's the reality. You've got these handles of sin. Death will lay hold of you. It will drag you unto itself. And here's the deal. Death won't let you go. It's not some eternal soul sleep you move into. 
The lights don't just go off. There is an anguish. There's, an, there's a pangs of death which continue on after your final breath on this earth. There's an eternal anguish, an eternal torment. It's the eternal reality of being separated from the presence of God by your sin. And that hell is every bit as real as the chair you're sitting in this morning. However, stay with me, artist. For those who trust Christ for their salvation, trust not in your own righteousness but in his. Here's what the Bible says. Dozens and dozens, I think well over 100 times it uses the phrases, uses the phrase to describe someone who's trusted in Christ as one who is in Christ. It's an interesting preposition. In Christ. The idea is just as Christ passed through death and emerged victorious, anyone who's in Christ Death can hold you no better than it can hold him. It cannot lay hold of you. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus created a path through death to eternal life. And when you are in Christ, you will pass through death. Matter of fact, when you take your last breath on this earth and your eyes close for the last time, here's the here's the biblical, weighty, substantiated theological truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the moment you take your last breath on this earth, your very next breath is in the presence of your Savior. Listen, they may not have a funeral until two or three or four days later, and at that point they may put your body in the ground, but understand, you're not um, uh, trapped in that body going to the death. Not if you're in Christ. You have already passed through. You are already in the presence of Jesus. This is why Jesus said to the thief on the cross who put his faith in him, he said, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today. This is why Paul writes to the Philippians to be apart from the body is to be alive with Christ. This is what he meant when he wrote to the first Corinthians. We just sang about it. He said, uh, oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us victory through Jesus Christ. Do you understand? He's loosened the pangs of death. But he hasn't merely loosened the pangs of death once we die. I told Caleb, hey buddy, we experience our faith this very day, this very hour. Our faith is experiential. Look what what David says. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. David said there are things in the human experience that shake us, that concern us, that bring us great anxiety, that disturb or disrupt or disorient. David said, because the Lord is near me, now we experience the living reality of a Savior who is near, I will not be shaken. The first thing you have when you know Christ that testifies to the truth of his resurrection and substantiates your faith is you have peace. Anyone here that is truly a born-again Christian, you have been uh, born of the Spirit, you know what it is to have peace when others don't. You know what it is to have a peace that Paul would write in Philippians 4, passes understanding, like it doesn't even make sense, I only can tell you that I'm at peace with what's not okay. I had something happen this uh, week that was interesting and it was so random that I think it was providential. I, I, uh, I've try- been trying to put away some money for the last 17 years since I've been employed and, uh, and working and, and trying to be responsible and save what I can. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and I mean, I, when I say rarely, it may be once, maybe twice a year, 
I will talk to the gentleman who's a friend of mine who kind of oversees my financial welfare. And, you know, just we really talk about other things, but maybe, maybe once a year I'll say, hey, how's, how's everything going? Just, you know, with, you know, my retirement, you know, savings, investment, everything still there, you know. And, and uh, we just kind of have that check-in here and there. Well, this last week, Tuesday night, I had an email from him, and, and it was kind of late at night. I was about to shut my computer. I'd been working on my server, and I clicked on this uh, I just clicked on this uh, link, and I didn't really realize, but it took me to my portfolio. And, uh, and so it was somewhat, again, somewhat accidental. I think this was the Lord. I, I went to the portfolio, and it said, uh, right there front and center, I'd never even seen this page, it's, it said, your net worth. Are you guys ready for this? My net worth was displayed before my eyes Tuesday night, $232. <laughs> my sons were like, we're rich. 232, and so I thought, now that's interesting, let me see, I'm probably reading something wrong here, well, let's see, and I mean, everywhere else, just nothing but zeros here, you know, you don't have any here, 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 the, your entire worth, and so I was like, let me refresh this, maybe this is like 17 years, I haven't, I haven't been to this site before, Refre- 232, like the number wasn't changing, and so I, I sat there and I thought, huh, I could have sworn I'd saved more than that. And, uh, and it was the, str- and listen, this, is, this was the strangest thing. I, I thought, should I tell Catherine? <laughs> I thought, nah, I don't want to do that to her. Um, and I literally thought, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, maybe there's a mistake. Maybe, may, I know the market's been kind of volatile. I, I, just, I don't know. But I just kind of sat there and smiled at the computer. I thought, you know, that's interesting. This is communicating to me that I got 230. I mean, we can make a Redbirds game and seventh inning stretch ice cream for all the boys, and that's it. Like, we're going out with a bang. <laughs> but I want, I want to tell you something. I literally, uh, I just thought to myself. It was like in this moment where I was like, wait, is, that, is this okay? And I thought, uh, you know what? God, is, God has so blessed me. I just, I just had this wave of thinking about my wife, how unbelievable she is. I started thinking about our children our home, and then I thought about the resurrected Christ. Now, I know it's Easter week, I'm prepared. I just thought about that I've got Christ. Like the, 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 the reality of the living God who ministers to me through his spirit, who now and forever, even if in this sliver of life we got to milk 232 for all it's worth, for eternity, we're secure. And I, I want to tell you, I, I just had peace. I literally shut the computer and went to bed. It wasn't until about 11 a.m. the next morning I thought, maybe I should check on that. <laughs> but just had peace. Hey, can I tell you something? I believe that was the Holy Spirit even ministering to me in that moment. Even reminding me that if we put our trust in anything in this world, it's futile. But you cling to him, you, you got everything you'll ever need. I had a lady come up to me after the sunrise service and say, it's okay that you're only worth $200. I wanted to say, well, I, I think I'm worth more than that to the Lord. That's just all I have. <laughs> Listen, David says, there's an experience of your faith. Caleb, Dad, how do we know? Well, buddy, I'll tell you, I got a peace that passes understanding when things are not right. You know what else he says? He says, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. You know what else we have? You know what a mark of a true Christian is? We have joy. And by the way, the context is joy and sorrow. 
like even in the, like life will throw some curveballs at you. There's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. And yet, as a Christian, we are marked with peace. It's unshakable and joy. It's undeniable. And I think this is what it is. We experience, Christians, we experience the pain and the suffering we're called to endure. We experience everything the human experience allows you. We don't get a king's X on these things just because we're in Christ and he's in us. But we experience the pain of this earth and the pain of our present reality reminds us that one day it'll be no more. Like our eyes are turned to a day when it says Jesus Christ will literally wipe the tears from our eyes. I love that. So the pain of today reminds me of the joy of tomorrow and it infuses joy into my today. And so unmistakably, a Christian has joy even in the midst of sadness, even in the midst of sorrow. And it says not only to have peace and to have joy, it says my flesh will also dwell in hope. I love this. I love this text. Because God raised him, because your faith is experiential, if you know Christ, you have peace that makes no sense to anybody else. You've got joy that's just undeniable and unshakable. And you also have hope. Again, the context is in death. He's about to speak of not letting this holy one see decay. Even in death, Paul would write to the Thessalonians, look, when a brother or sister in Christ dies, understand this. Grieve, yes, absolutely. Grieve the loss of relationship. Grieve the loss of friend. There's that which needs to be grieved. We need to learn to grieve healthily. But don't grieve as those who have no hope. That would be to deny the resurrection. Here's what the resurrection says. Your brother or your sister who has died, that you're grieving their loss. Understand they're not lost. Understand that even now they're in the presence of Christ. And understand that when your time comes, when you pass through death, you will be back not only in the Lord's presence, but in reunion with those brothers and sisters to celebrate his faithfulness for all of eternity. That puts hope square in the middle of grief to the extent that we know this isn't all there is. That these are the shadow lands, everything we're experiencing, this slow, my goodness, game, the sliver of eternity that is our lives will give way to an eternal reality. And so we dwell on this earth in the flesh in hope, filled with hope, because he lives. Here's why. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. You know why it is that the Christian has a different, you're, you're gonna live the, uh, the, you may live the same amount of years as the, as the non-believer and your experience of the human life will be radically different. It'll be infused with a peace that passes understanding, joy amidst the sadness, and hope amidst grief because of the presence of the living God who is near to you. Because Jesus is alive and he's with you. David says that when the Messiah comes, his people will look different. They'll dwell with him, he'll dwell with them, they'll have peace, they'll have joy, they'll have hope. I said, Caleb, I can, I, I can tell you how I know that it's all true. It's incredibly reasonable. I can't deny it. But my experience confirms it every single day. And when the trials are turned up, when the heat's turned up a little bit, when, when things get hard, when they get difficult, when they're most discouraging, that's when I'm most assured of his presence. That's when I'm most assured. That's why I consider even trials pure joy. Our staff went to visit one of our dearest brothers. Remember in our body, Brent McBride, he was in the hospital. Um, uh, uh, his body's just really been... Uh, tormented with cancer for over a year now. They've tried all kind of chemo and radiation. He's just been through the ringer with this deal. 
And so we went to visit him, we went to pray over him, and we got in there and we, we just had on our hearts to go encourage Brent and Sandra and we get to the hospital room and if you know the McBride, you'll, you just, you, you've had the same experience I've had. You go in there and you're trying to encourage this man, but it's just hard because he's already so encouraged. He's just, he, even though his body is giving way, his spirit is so full and he is just speaking truth and he's encouraging you and he's talking about how unbelievable Sandra is that he never even realized how great she was until this sickness. He's talking about how good the Lord is and how near to him God is and how much he loves each of us in that room and, pre- and how much he can't wait to get back to his ministry to internationals and the guy's talking and you're just going, gosh, you can take away his health. You can ravage his body with disease, but you know what you can't touch? You cannot get to his peace. You can't get to his joy. You can't take his hope. Because the presence of the living Christ is alive in him. Some of us worship Jesus like we're at a memorial service. You come and you remember and you revere, but you're not experiencing, you're not enjoying You relate to Jesus like I relate to my earthly father who passed when I was 16. Sometimes I go to his uh, grave. Sometimes I put flowers out around this time of year. I'll clean it up. I'll stand there. I'll remember things. I'll tell a story or two. Occasionally I'll get emotional. I may cry. And then we leave. Some of you, I just described your church annually. You know, send me out. Like, that's what I do. I come and I remember and we hear the stories and we shed a tear. We might even get emotional, but... This isn't a memorial service because Jesus Christ isn't dead. We're not, we're not standing over his grave because the grave is empty. We can do with Jesus what I cannot do with my earthly father. Every single day, we relate to him. We speak with him. We commune with him. We hear from him. We abide in him. His presence infuses in us joy and peace and hope. Our faith is experiential. How do we know it's true? It's reasonable. Experience him. And then there's one more thing, and I want to round third and go home with this. Verse 23, again, Peter said, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan of God. I just want to point out something. This was no accident. Jesus crucified. Um, This was the definite plan of God. That his only begotten would endure the cross and be raised again. I, I want to say this just as clear as I can. There is no way for you and I to be saved for us to have salvation. There's no way apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross and his subsequent bodily resurrection from the grave. There's no other way to be saved. Romans 4.25 says so much. It says he was delivered over for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Justification means to be declared righteous. We can't be declared righteous if he did not die in our place and for our sin and was not raised from the dead. Let me try to explain. The law of God required holiness. It requires holiness. It requires righteousness. It requires what no one in this room has to offer. The word of God says there's no one righteous, not even one, certainly not me. Paul would say I'm the least of all sinners. 
or the chief of all sinners, the least of all God's people. If you really understand your sin, that's the way you feel. There's no one righteous. None of us can merit our own salvation before God. None of our good deeds, as noble as they may be, none of them absolve us from our sin. None of us cleanse our filthy garments before God. We all stand guilty. Let me give you a picture of that. I've told this story some years ago in here, but I had a friend who was at a a good old Texas chili cookout one night at his friend's ranch, and he was out there and... uh, uh, his, his buddy was, uh, was the host. He was cooking uh, chili for everyone. He had this enormous 50-gallon vat, and he was just working this chili around, just, just, uh, just continually um, you know, keep churning it up before he served it. And this, uh, this good old country boy uh, had a big old wad of tobacco in his mouth, and he was chewing. And my, my buddy, who was standing next to his buddy, the host, was just talking to him, and he couldn't help but notice that little drizzle of tobacco that was running down his chin. And every once in a while, I could see it was just about to drop right into the chili, and he just, he just wanted to hand him something, like he'd get kind of nervous, until all of a sudden, the, the man who was working the chili, the host, he did the unthinkable. And my buddy was horrified. He said, what, what did you just do? He said, what are you talking about? He said, you just spit in the chi- you spat in the chili. He said, oh, gives it a little flavor. Now listen to me. How much chili did my buddy eat that night? 50 gallons. I don't care how many gallons. I don't care how much fresh meat and beans and tomato sauce or whatever else you want to bring to that chili. That chili is officially ruined. You cannot cleanse it. It cannot be restored. It must be replaced. Understand this about our righteousness. We have soiled our garments before God, every one of us. We're dirty. Good deeds, more good works does not cleanse us. In terms of our righteousness, it cannot be restored. It must be replaced. So what did God do? In his definite plan, seeing us in our need, here's his definite plan. What had to happen was he would send one who was righteous as a substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he would pay the price for our sin. By the way, he can't pay the price for our sin unless he's righteous. The blood shed to wash away our sin must not be contaminated with its own sin. And so Jesus had to die. Yes, the price had to be paid. He also had to rise because there had to be some proof that the payment was acceptable to God. That the righteous requirement of the law had been met, had been satisfied, and had been offered on our behalf. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof of his righteousness reckoned to our account. Listen, anyone that trusts, here's what it means to be saved by grace through faith. Anyone that trusts in Christ for your salvation means you never have to hope again in your own good deeds. You don't have to hope in your own righteousness. Here's what you're understanding. His righteousness was credited to my account. His funds were placed in my account. I'm no longer trusting in my righteousness. I'm trusting in his righteousness. I'm now in Christ. When you pay with a credit card, you make that swipe, and then you wait, and you're going to be approved based on whether or not you have sufficient funds. We don't have sufficient funds for salvation, but he does. And so spiritually, when we swipe, we're no, longer, we're no longer waiting to see whether we have been approved. It's whether Jesus Christ has been approved. 
And because he is approved by the Father, he emerges victorious from the grave. And every one of us have sufficient funds because his righteousness has been reckoned to us. We're saved by grace. We didn't earn it through faith. Hey, Caleb, our faith is reasonable. It's an experiential faith. And it's a saving faith. It's a saving faith. Not a person here can be saved. We can't be declared righteous because it's impossible if Jesus did not raise from the dead. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if he didn't raise, we're still in our sins. Still under the pangs of death in full effect. Our faith is futile if that's, if that's the reality. And he said we are to be pitied among men. But you know what the gospel says? Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. On the third day, he rose. He's, he's not dead. He's alive. He's conquered sin, death, and the grave. And for anyone, you know what Peter says? You know what the preceding verse to this passage I read you is? Verse 21, he says, And it shall come to pass, and it has, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a saving faith. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, the payment for your sin was made on Calvary's cross. And the evidence of his sufficiency was declared when he came out of the tomb, when he was raised to life. The only requirement left for your salvation and mine is that you would call upon the name of the Lord you might be saved. It's a reasonable faith. It's an experienced faith. And it's a saving faith. If you've never trusted Christ, why don't you do it this day? That the pangs of death be loosened now, forever. Now, forever. Would you bow with me? Lord, I am unbelievably aware in this moment of a salvation that is by grace, that is through faith. And I am overwhelmed with gratitude. Oh God, that we don't have to perform good enough in this life to be acceptable unto you. That your son was acceptable to you. Your only begotten. And he came as a substitute. He paid the price of our sin. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God, I've been praying all week that there be somebody in every one of these services, whether it's one, whether it's many, that would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that would be like the one Peter talks about and says, there shall come a day when you simply call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Father, if there is one whose heart beats quick, who recognizes the despairing reality of their sin and their life apart from Christ, will you convict them 
of their sin and their guilt? Will you convince them of the truth of Christ? Even now, the reasonability of Christ raised from the dead would overwhelm their minds and hearts and they would surrender. They would trust you. They would yield to you their lives for you yielded your life to us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in that place that right now they would say something like this. God, you are holy and I'm sinful. I am wretched and apart from your son Jesus dying in my place. I am justly to be condemned. I ask that you would forgive me of my sin, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ did, because of what he did for me. I receive your son. I receive you, Jesus. I call upon your name. Save me. Save even me. Fill me with your spirit. Let me experience, let me taste and see even now how good you are. Let me experience new life in Christ. Let me be born again this morning. Let me walk in the newness of life filled with joy and hope and peace all the days of my life. Let me long for the day that I may finally meet you who are faithful and true. Save even me. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.